The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Valentine's Day, the most romantic day of the year, the perfect time to profess new love or to restoke old fires of desire. For Richard and Stacy Sheck, Valentine's Day 2010 was their opportunity to do just that. Their plan was to meet up in a secret secluded spot in the pitch darkness of the northern Georgia countryside, a perfect place to drink some wine, exchange their valentines, and maybe more. Tragically, they'd never get that chance. Join me now as we take a look into a Valentine's date that turned deadly. You'll learn how detectives faced with a mysterious tragedy soon discovered a startling and unexpected web of lies and a conniving woman at its center. Not many experiences compare to lifting off in a hot air balloon, taking off on an adventure, the exact destination unknown, only that it's downwind, somewhere. It's a romantic idea, a metaphor for living. Control what you can control and let the wind do the rest. As the wicker basket leaves the ground, suspended beneath the balloon, the feeling is surreal. No G-forces, no lurching. No violent acceleration, just floating, higher and higher above the ground. Once in the air, there's another surprising sensation. There's no wind, or at least, it feels that way. Because the wind and the balloon are moving at the same speed. It's calm, quiet, and serene. Suspended this way, 3,000 feet above the ground, moving only at the speed of the wind, is arguably the best way to view the scenery and landscape of northern Georgia. It's a perfect view, with all the time in the world to take it all in. On May 23, 2010, 38-year-old Stacy Sheck took off in a hot air balloon just northeast of Atlanta, Georgia. It was the first time she'd ever been in one. It would also be her last. Floating high above Gwinnett County, the Atlanta skyline is visible on the horizon just beyond Stone Mountain to the southwest. To the north, the shores of Lake Lanier come into view, and far beyond them on clear days, the view extends all the way to the Springer Mountain, the southern terminus of the Appalachian Trail. As Stacy floated high in the sky, just below her balloon, the innumerable suburbs and manicured subdivisions of metropolitan Atlanta drifted past. One of them, a predominantly upscale suburb called Snellville. It was where Stacy had lived with her husband, 46-year-old Richard Sheck, and her three sons. On any other day, Stacy would have been smiling from ear to ear riding in the basket. But this wasn't a normal day. 
just three months earlier. On Valentine's Day, Richard had been tragically and brutally murdered. The reason Stacy was in the balloon that day was to sprinkle Richard's ashes over the side of the wicker basket. The flight was his casting ceremony. Richard Sheck had loved hot air balloons. He'd been an enthusiast who piloted them almost every chance he got, and everyone agreed the ceremony was what he would have wanted, scattered on the winds over northern Georgia, the same way he'd lived his life, just one last time. There's a prayer that balloonists say before takeoff, but it's perhaps even more fitting for a pilot's final send-off. May the winds welcome you with softness. May the sun bless you with its warm rays. May you fly so high and so well that God will join you in laughter and set you gently back again into the loving arms of Mother Earth. A small crowd had gathered to witness the launch. Friends and family people who had loved Richard and wanted to say goodbye one last time. And in the back of their minds was the ever-present question, who could have possibly done this to him and why? The case was still open and the murderer was still out there. As detectives continued to ask the question, what had really happened to Richard on Valentine's Day? Richard Sheck was born in 1963 making him eight years older than his wife, Stacy. The term jack-of-all-trades seems to have been invented to describe a person just like Richard. Everything seemed to interest him, and whatever he did, he got pretty good at it. He was an accomplished artist, having graduated with an art degree from Auburn University. He liked to paint murals, take exceptional photos, and he became a graphic designer for the Yellow Pages in Atlanta, but he could just as easily put down the lenses or the brushes and pick up a set of power tools. If anyone needed something fixed, they knew they could give Richard a call and he'd come over to give them a hand. At the time of his death, Richard was a maintenance manager for a doctor's office. Outside of his professional life, however, is where Richard's eclectic interests were most evident. Of course, there was the hot air balloon piloting, but motorcycles were also a passion and he loved cruising the beautiful southern roads of northern Georgia. In 2005, Richard was 43 years old when he met Stacy. Just two years later in 2007, Richard and Stacy eloped, only telling friends and family about their wedding once they returned. To anyone that knew Richard, it was just the kind of surprise they expected from him, known for his fun and spontaneous nature. But to anyone who knew Stacy, well, they just wondered how long it would last, because Richard was her fifth husband. After getting married, Richard became a stepfather to Stacy's three boys from her previous relationships, and just like everything else Richard did, he threw his heart and soul into his new role. Not only did Richard coach the boys' soccer teams, he also became their Cub Scouts den leader, leading spelunking adventures teaching knots, and taking Pac-65 on camping trips, where he was renowned for building the biggest roaring campfires. Stacy, however, was the breadwinner of the family, making over six figures as the head administrator at the Georgia Spine and Neurosurgery Center. She was organized, a type A personality, and even though her career kept her away from her children more than she liked, Richard happily filled in the void at home, 
spending practically all his free time with the kids. Beyond Stacy's job, she also looked after her aging grandparents, who required round-the-clock assistance at their home in Cleveland, Georgia. Although her family hired a nursing service to provide in-home care, there was still lots to do, and so Stacy would often take it upon herself to pick up the slack by providing nursing care herself. She was also in charge of the little things, like selling her grandparents' 2009 Chevy Impala to help offset some of their medical costs. And that's where Stacy was, at her grandparents' home, on the evening of February 14, 2010, Valentine's Day. Richard was there too, demonstrating another one of his infamous skills, cooking, a passion he'd also shared with his own father who'd recently passed away. Between Stacy's job, the children, and helping with her grandparents, Richard and Stacy had been finding it increasingly difficult to spend any personal time together, and personal intimate moments between the two were becoming rather infrequent. But that was all supposed to change on Valentine's Day. Richard's expertly prepared dinner for the family wasn't the only thing the Shecks had planned that night. Back when Richard and Stacy were dating, they liked to find secluded spots out in the country. Whenever they found the right spot, they'd take advantage of the seclusion to hook up. It was their way of adding a little extra spice to their budding relationship. So for Valentine's Day 2010, that was exactly what Stacy had in mind for her and Richard, to go to one of their spots, exchange Valentines, and rekindle some of the intimacy that had been lost in their busy schedules. She had a specific spot in mind, a place called Belton Bridge Park, only about 15 minutes away from her grandparents' home. So after dinner, Richard left in his gold F-250 pickup truck around 8.15 p.m. His gas tank was low, so he left ahead of Stacy to fill it up before heading to the park. The plan was for Stacy to join him as soon as she could. However, the nurse was running late, and Stacy couldn't leave until she arrived. Stacy finally left her grandparents' house around 9.15 p.m., about an hour after Richard. When she got to the park, she pulled in and saw Richard's truck. But something was wrong. The truck was still running, the cab light was on, and the door was open. Richard was nowhere to be seen. Getting out of her vehicle, Stacy walked over and discovered Richard lying on the ground. He'd been shot six times at close range, twice in the head, three times in the torso, and once in his hand. Stacy could tell instantly, Richard was dead. At 9.32 p.m., Stacy dialed 911 from her cell phone. and panicking, it's almost impossible to understand Stacy. However, what can be distinctly heard is her saying, he's been shot, he's dead. While the operator sends out officers to the location of the shooting, he continues asking Stacy questions. How long ago did you find him, Stacy? 
She's distraught and completely exasperated. At one point, the operator can be heard telling someone in the background, this lady's hysterical. What do I tell myself? <laughs> Although Richard and Stacy had only been married a little over two years, Richard had completely embodied the role of the perfect father in a blended family and had formally adopted Stacy's two youngest sons as his own. Hearing the horrific news of Richard's murder would no doubt come as a devastating shock, and Stacy knew she'd have to be the one to break it to them. When police arrived on the scene, they discovered exactly what Stacy had described. Richard laying on his back just outside of his truck, his blood pooled beneath him in the soft, muddy parking lot. Detective's first thought was that it could have been a robbery, but upon closer inspection, the theory was quickly dismissed. Nothing valuable seemed to have been taken. His wallet, cash, and jewelry were untouched. So what happened? Did Richard stumble upon something he wasn't supposed to see? A drug deal? Disposal of a body? Perhaps it was a tragic case of mistaken identity. However, the one thing that did stand out to Detective Franklin was how many times Richard had been shot. Six, a manner of death he described as overkill. The murder screamed of a personal or perhaps premeditated motive. But there was something else detectives asked themselves. Why had Richard gotten out of his vehicle? Had he recognized someone at the park? Before long, they found their first clue. Three distinct sets of tire tracks were imprinted into the muddy parking lot. Richard's, Stacy's, and a third mystery set of tracks. By examining the way the tires intersected, they determined that the mystery vehicle had pulled in there before Richard, but had left after Richard arrived, and sometime before Stacy pulled in. Whoever made those tracks immediately became their prime suspect. They took photos of the imprints and began the process of identifying the brand of tires. At the scene, detectives began questioning Stacy, and they quickly learned something surprising. She admitted she'd been having an affair with another man, one that had been going on for about six or seven months. Now, if you put together what detectives had gleaned so far, a secret affair, overkill, Valentine's Day, a jealous lover seemed like the perfect suspect. Needing more information, Stacy was brought to the station for a formal interview. The man she was having an affair with was a younger man who worked as a medical assistant at Stacy's spinal clinic, a man named Juan Reyes. When did the affair start? Well, that's why I was saying it's kind of caught, you know. I mean, it was five years ago. That was before I even met Richard, and right. then... Juan so went through a, a divorce and, and then, and you know, he moved to Florida and I would just communicate with him via email. We just stayed friends, you know, and then, um, but there was always some, you know, there was always something there between us as far as just communicating. Now, I didn't see him for three years. Okay. And, but, but you had a relationship with him before he moved though. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And so when did he come back? I don't Florida? know when he moved back. I saw him for the first time in, um, this was probably April of 09. Okay. Although Juan had zero job experience in the medical field, Stacy was able to get him a job at the clinic where she worked, and before long, it developed into something more. So Richard never knew about your affair then? I mean, I'm sure that he had um, ideas, you know. I'm sure he was suspicious. Mm -hmm. They were confirming about um, it? Or? No, no. I mean, when... Back in April, when Juan came back in, you know, and uh, and I had told Richard, I said, I think I'm going to hire him to work. He needs the job. He needs to take care of his family. He's always been, I mean, Richard's always known about Juan, known that Juan was a very good friend of mine, you know, and knew that we had a relationship before. And when he started in the office, I mean, Richard did say, he said, are you about to have an affair? And at that point, and I, I said, no, of course not, because at that point I had no intent of that. Um, but it did, but it changed. Stacy insisted that Juan wasn't capable of murder. He wasn't a violent man, but she conceded she'd seen enough TV to know that strange things can happen. She also told detectives that Juan had known about her and Richard's plans to meet up at the park that night. We were going to find out what happened to him. For sure. Okay? We'll find out. Okay. If there's anything that you know that you, that you that you have not told us to this point, right now is the time that you got to tell me. Okay. Okay? Because if we start getting into this thing and we start branching out and it starts coming back in, in a circle and it starts heading back in your direction, I, that's a bad situation for you to be in. And that's a bad position for you to be in. Do you understand? Yeah. Because that is a very secluded park. That is a very remote area of our county. Okay, so you understand that we have to weigh, did a stranger do this or is it something else? And on the something else category, you got a lot going on. Do you understand? There's a lot going on in your life that, that starts to tip the scales away from being a stranger. Do you understand that? I do. Juan wasn't someone Stacy would just occasionally hook up with. He was verifiably a kept man. In fact, Stacy really seemed to enjoy spending money on Juan, making his truck payments and paying his cell phone bills. Just three weeks earlier, she'd even taken Juan to Vegas for a weekend. Her excuse to Richard? She was heading there for a work conference. She even rented out a separate apartment specifically kept as a love nest for her and Juan. The more detectives learned, the more certain they became that Juan Reyes had something to do with Richard's murder. The next morning, police brought Juan in for an interview. Further adding to their already high suspicions, they learned that Juan had shown up to work that day with a freshly shaved beard. Just the day before, he'd had a full beard. Now it was shaved into a tight goatee. Was he trying to alter his appearance? All signs were pointing directly at Juan Reyes, but when they began to question him, their theory began to fall apart because he had an alibi, his ex-wife. Although they were divorced, the couple had recently begun attempting to reconcile their marriage. It was Valentine's Day after all. His story was simple. 
He'd rented a movie with his son at 5 p.m. The family ate dinner together around 7.30, and he and his ex-wife were in bed by 10.30. According to Juan, Stacy had told him that she and Richard had an open marriage, meaning they were allowed to see other people on the side. For his part, Juan admitted to mostly just using Stacy for her money. Emotions weren't a part of the equation for him. Completely unconvinced by his story, detectives then questioned Juan's ex-wife to see if she would corroborate his alibi. It was during this interview she first learned of Juan's affair. Would she confirm an alibi for a man she just discovered had betrayed her? She did. Every single word of it. Juan had been with her the whole night, except when he'd gone to Blockbuster around 5 p.m. If she was telling the truth, Juan couldn't have killed Richard. So who had? Detectives were stunned. Their surefire lead was now looking like a dead end. They also noticed that Juan's car tires were not a match for the mystery tracks left at the crime scene. They were now back to square one. But just when detectives were feeling frustrated and unsure of where to look for their next lead, out of the blue, a tip came in from an IT technician at the spinal clinic where Stacy worked. The technician had noticed something strange in Stacy's email inbox. All of her emails from the weekend of Richard's murder had been deleted. An entire weekend of missing emails seemed suspicious enough to warrant a call to police. Lucky for detectives, all of the deleted emails had been saved on a backup drive. After obtaining a search warrant, detectives began poring over Stacy's deleted emails and discovered two suspicious money transfers. The first was from January a transfer of $8,900. The second was for $1,100 on February 12th, just two days before the murder. Both payments had been made out to a woman named Lenitra Ross, another co-worker of Stacy's. Together, the payments added up to $10,000, a nice round number. And round numbers always stick out like sore thumbs. The idea that perhaps Stacy had hired a hitman to murder Richard crossed Detective Franklin's mind. But when they asked Lenitra about the payments, she didn't blink an eye. She calmly explained she rented a house from Stacy and the money had gone into some much-needed home repairs. She told them she had all the receipts if they wanted to see them. Detectives now found themselves at another dead end. By this time, Police had identified the brand of tires that had made the mystery tracks in the mud of the crime scene. Goodyear Integrity Tires, a popular brand, and hardly enough of a clue to go on. But they had another tip that had been called in that could possibly lead detectives in their next direction. A tip called in by Stacy's cousin. It was regarding the Chevy Impala Stacy was supposed to sell on behalf of her grandparents to help pay for their medical bills. According to the cousin, Stacy claimed to have sold the car for $14,000, but none of the money had gone to her grandparents. To the cousin, this seemed like shady behavior, but to the investigators, it wasn't exactly unheard of for a grieving widow to be a little behind on her personal finances. Even so, Detective Franklin had a lingering thought in the back of his mind he couldn't shake. A hunch, you could say. But with almost nothing else to go on, it was a hunch he had to pursue. 
What if it was a murder for hire case? And what if Stacy was involved? Even if only to cross the idea off the list, he knew he needed to explore the possibility. But how? Detective Franklin had a theory. If someone had been hired to kill Richard, that meant the assassin would already have been at Belton Bridge Park, lying in wait, ready to attack Richard once he arrived, which would explain the mystery tire tracks. And what would any normal person do, sitting in the dark all alone, bored and waiting? They'd probably use their phone. And if they'd used their phone, there'd be a record of it. Exactly one cell tower serviced the area near Belton Bridge Park, a lucky break for investigators. But even that one tower logged a staggering number of calls, texts, and data each day. Not to be dismayed, Detective Franklin subpoenaed the tower records and began trying to find a needle in a haystack. And here's where it gets clever. Based on the theory that Stacy was involved, they pulled out a copy of Stacy's cell phone contacts, which they'd acquired earlier on in the investigation. They then cross-referenced the tower records to see if one of Stacy's 258 contacts had made a call using that tower. And there was a match. At 8.40 p.m., a contact named Reggie had made a call. Eyebrows raised when they saw the company name Reggie was listed under, Mr. Results. It certainly sounded like the name of a hitman. It turned out, Reggie was a personal trainer who branded himself and his business as Mr. Results. Detectives couldn't help but feel like they'd just hit another dead end. That's until they decided to approach the phone records from a slightly different angle. They ran the number Reggie had dialed on the night of the murder, and what detectives discovered had them convinced they were finally onto something. It turned out the number belonged to Lenitra Ross, the same woman Stacy transferred $10,000 to for home repairs. Suddenly, a gruesome murder-for-hire plot didn't seem so crazy. That's when detectives decided to begin investigating all communication between Reggie, Lenitra, and Stacy. What they discovered was astonishing. At 6.42 p.m. on Valentine's Day, Reggie called Lenitra. Three minutes later, Lenitra called Stacy. And three minutes after that, Lenitra called Reggie back. Fast forward almost two hours. Richard was now at the park, waiting for Stacy. At 8.40 p.m., Reggie called Lenitra at almost exactly the same time as Richard's estimated time of death. Three minutes after the phone call, Lenitra sent Stacy a text. Don't forget I'm coming in late tomorrow. Forgot to remind you, happy Valentine's Day. Was this Lenitra's way of saying the job was done? The phone calls and text painted a pretty damning picture. Reggie the trigger man, Lenitra the middleman, and Stacy the ringleader. By this point, it was all conjecture. There was no way to prove or even know what had been said on those phone calls, but it was enough to get warrants for bank records. What detectives soon discovered was a complicated series of money transfers, payments, deposits and cash withdrawals that definitely linked Stacy, Lenitra, and Reggie. 
specifically in the weeks leading up to Richard's murder and the weeks immediately following. They'd done their best to hide their scheme, but once detectives knew exactly what they were looking for, they were able to prove Stacy had paid Lenitra $10,000, who then passed it on to Reggie. But there was one more thing they'd also discovered. They found Stacy's grandparents' 2009 Chevy Impala. Just three days after Richard's murder, Stacy had loaned the car to a woman named Alicia Flores, who turned out to be the mother of Juan Reyes, the man Stacy had been having an affair with. And from Alicia, they learned Stacy had previously loaned the car out to Lenitra Ross the same weekend as Richard's murder. And guess what kind of tires were on the Impala? Goodyear Integrity Tires. Stacy had given the car to Lenitra, who then passed it on to Reggie for the Valentine's Day hit. It also potentially explained why Richard had gotten out of his truck that night. Perhaps he recognized the vehicle. The phone records, the Impala and money trail, now made it possible for detectives to arrest all three conspirators for the murder for hire of Richard Shack, and none of them saw it coming. On May 23, 2010, Stacy scattered Richard's ashes from a hot air balloon, putting on a performance for everyone who attended. It's unimaginable to think how many lies she must have told Richard's friends, family, worse of all, her children, all in order to keep up the perception of a grieving widow as long as she needed. But it wouldn't go on for much longer, because just two days later, on March 25th, Stacy was in handcuffs. Operation Tangled Web was the codename given to the coordinated and simultaneous arrests of Stacy, Lenitra, and Reggie. A massive effort ensuring all three would be arrested on the same day. Because if any of them had a chance to warn the others, there was a real possibility that valuable, incriminating evidence might be destroyed. In the state of Georgia, murder for hire is a capital offense, meaning the death penalty is on the table if prosecutors wish to seek it. After their arrests, Lenitra and Reggie both denied having anything to do with killing Richard, but Stacy sang like a canary and admitted to everything, claiming she wanted to tell the truth because it was the right thing to do. She agreed to testify against the others in exchange for removing the possibility of the death sentence. But was Stacy really unburdening her conscience, or was she willing to say anything to save her own skin? According to Stacy in her interviews with police and her testimony during Lenitra Ross's eventual murder trial, this is how things really shook down. In early January, Stacy had lunch with Lenitra, a co-worker, rental tenant, and friend. During the lunch, she told Lenitra she wanted Richard to be killed. The reason? She suspected Richard was molesting one of her boys. To her surprise, Lenitra told Stacy she knew somebody who could do the job for a price. The man for the job, her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Reggie Coleman, the same personal trainer Stacy's office occasionally hired to conduct fitness boot camps for employees, Mr. Results. 
The three of them had met and discussed the idea and set the price. Reggie would get paid $10,000. For her role, Lenitra would be given the deed to the house she was living in, the one she'd been renting off Stacy. The trio met up again the following weekend and made a dry run-through of their plan, driving out to Belton Bridge Park, where they would hash out the details. The plan was for Reggie to make it look like a robbery. Investigators were especially interested to know about the phone calls that had been made on the night of the murder. The first call Reggie had made to Lenitra was to ask her what color Richard's truck was. Lenitra then called Stacy to verify the color. Lenitra then called Reggie back to tell him the answer. The call at 8.40 p.m., the one Detective Franklin had originally noticed in the tower records, was Reggie to Lenitra, confirming the job was done. Richard was dead. Lenitra's text, just minutes later to Stacy, Happy Valentine's Day, was the code message to let Stacy know the deed was done. From there, it was Stacy's turn to play her part, driving to the park, discovering Richard, and calling 911. It's a haunting thought, that phone call, the desperation, the screaming, crying, shortness of breath, asking the operator how she was going to break the news to her children. It was all an act. To Stacy's dismay, however, when she got to the scene, she realized Reggie had messed up big time. It didn't look like the fake robbery like they planned. It was supposed to be one shot to the head with his jewelry and wallet gone. It was a real possibility that this mistake was the entire difference between getting away with it and getting caught. It's hard to imagine detectives chasing the same thin leads and long-shot hunches if the scene had indeed looked like a robbery. That's the story Stacy told investigators after her arrest, the same story she told on the witness stand at Lenitra's trial. And because her story was the silver bullet for the prosecution, it's the story they presented to the jury. Lenitra Ross was found guilty of malice murder for a role as the middleman in Richard's murder plot. She was then sentenced to life without parole. After Lenitra's guilty verdict, Reggie Coleman pleaded guilty and agreed to a sentence of life without parole in exchange for taking the death penalty off the table. Because of Stacy's cooperation with prosecutors, the death penalty was also removed and she too was given life without parole. But should we really take Stacy's story at face value? A woman who used her job, money, sex, rental agreements, and even her own children to manipulate and control those around her. There's at least one aspect of Stacy's story that we now know to be completely untrue. Stacy told Lenitra she believed Richard was molesting one of her sons, an unspeakably horrible accusation. According to Stacy, her son told her, you don't know what he does to me when you're not at home. She also said she noticed changes in his behavior. He was acting out and even shoplifted from a local store. Although she never directly asked her son about the abuse, she'd come to her own conclusion that Richard was abusing him. It was only after Richard's murder she claimed she brought up the subject to her son, 
and was horrified to learn from him that it all been a misunderstanding. Again, according to Stacy, she said what the boy had really meant was only that Richard was more strict around the house and that he'd gotten in trouble for things with Richard that Stacy would have let him get away with. But this entire story seems to have been made up by Stacy, first to convince Lenitra to help her kill Richard, and secondly, as an attempt to garner sympathy from investigators and prosecutors when it came to her sentencing. After she was in prison, however, Stacy revealed the truth to Richard's sister, Carol. Carol never believed Stacy had ever suspected Richard of being a child molester. It didn't make sense. It would mean that for months and months, Stacy continued to let her son be cared for by a man she allegedly believed was harming her child. According to Carol, she visited Stacy in prison to ask her this very question, and when she did, Stacy admitted the real reason behind the murder. Because Stacy had been having a secret affair behind Richard's back, she feared that if she divorced Richard, she might lose her two youngest children to him in a custody battle. The idea that Richard would get custody of the boys was a real possibility. Even though Stacy was their biological mother, Richard had legally adopted the two of them as his own, and with her work schedule keeping her away from home so much over the past five years, Richard had become the children's primary caregiver. If this was the true motive behind the murder for hire, this would mean Stacy was completely willing to lead her son to falsely believe he'd been indirectly responsible for Richard's murder because of a comment he made and then allowing him to carry that guilt for the rest of his life. The tragic irony of this case is that Stacy murdered Richard because he'd been such a good dad to her own children and was frightened he'd gain full custody if she went with another man. She wanted it all, but couldn't with Richard still alive. So when she got caught, Stacy said and did what she could, no matter who it hurt, to save herself from the death penalty. Richard Sheck had embraced Stacy's unique situation from the moment they'd met. Four previous marriages, three children, a busy professional life that kept her away from home for long hours. But like everything in his life, Richard dove in head first, full throttle. He became the ideal stepfather, the cool uncle, the den leader who built the biggest fires, and the balloon pilot everyone wanted to ride with. A legacy that will live on in the hearts and minds of those who loved him and knew him best. The scouts he led, the boys he coached, and all the lives he touched.
Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.